0: All those writers who write about their childhoods. Oh, gentle God, if I wrote about mine, you wouldn't sit in the same room with me. Hello, and welcome to Episode 8 of the Jeffers Podcast. Or, if you're in a not-safe-for-work-be-damned environment, Jen Frankel reads random shit. I am Jen Frankel, a writer of said random shit. But at the beginning of this episode, you heard me read a quote from the fierce, funny, inimitable Dorothy Parker. This episode is all about me, autobiography, and the common woman. I suppose every writer could be accused of resorting to autobiography for inspiration. After all, we are just bags of activated DNA processed through the trials of everyday life into whatever we happen to be today. Our experiences become indistinguishable from our essence, if there really ever is light between those two things. What we write comes from what we know and how our seething neuron slow cookers of brains choose to meld the flavors. A bunch of years ago, I decided to tackle the international three-day novel writing competition with the idea of writing a memoir. I packed up a banker's box of old essays, address books, journals, and random illustrations and drove to a hotel where I was less likely to interrupt myself by trying to, you know, live and write at the same time. Over the course of those 72 hours, I became a solipsistic archaeologist, digging into, well, me. For today's podcast, I researched what other authors have said about autobiography and the art of the memoir. George Orwell, of 1984 fame, said that autobiography is only to be trusted when it reveals something disgraceful. A man who gives a good account of himself is probably lying, since any life, when viewed from inside, is simply a series of defeats. Real optimist, that guy. Oscar Wilde, well known for both his scandals and his wit, wrote that he disliked modern memoirs, saying they are generally written by people who have either lost entirely their memories or have never done anything worth remembering. And then, of course, there's the Dorothy Parker quotation I opened with, suggesting that her own childhood was so dire or scandalous that no one who knew it would care to know her. One of my inspirations for writing a memoir uh, for the three-day novel writing competition was that Paris Hilton, at the tender age of, I think, 23, had already written hers, and I figured that, by comparison, I must have done something. The takeaway seems to be that autobiography is in the eye of the beholder, and someone who writes a memoir is potentially just as unreliable a narrator as the anti-hero of a novel. Memory is a funny thing. Each is only as old as the last time we thought of them, because recall itself has a transformatory effect on what we remember. Sometimes we remember that something happened, a story or a circumstance, but when we actually try to recall it, we find the mnemonic equivalent of an empty folder. The memory of having a memory is there, but the details are gone. Memories come and go as well, during the worst years of my depression, I could literally only recall the bad things from my past cruel words, mockery, loneliness. Recovery meant, to my surprise, spontaneous recollection of happier times and a gentler overall viewpoint as if my growing strength allowed me to look upon my own foibles with more kindness. Today I'm going to read several selections from what has come to be called Creative Nonfiction. In other words, a writerly approach to autobiography where the author takes a true story and doesn't fictionalize it but does give it some writerly flair. The first piece I'm going to read is the beginning of a memoir I wrote a few years back for that international 3-day novel writing competition. A terrific challenge, by the way, if you're up to it. it. Takes place over the long weekend in September. It's 72 hours of non-stop stress and in my case at least enough coffee to float a pretty serious boat. I called it Sincere Flattery, and I'm going to do something a little different this week and kick it off with a quotation I used at the beginning of the book, which isn't strictly speaking a quotation since I made it up myself. This is Sincere Flattery, Chapter 1, Life Path 7. It has been said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. So does that make autobiography the sincerest form of self-flattery? 1201 AM, day one. I'm gonna shove these tongues so far up your ass you can flip burgers with your tongue. That's how mad I am. That's how mad I am. 12.02 AM, day one. That's how angry I want to be. Rose Quartz. Sally says it brings what you need. Wash it with rock salt and set around you in a circle. I made myself some rose quartz jewelry yesterday in preparation for beginning this. Dangling pink chip earrings, a bracelet, a choker with rose quartz, and a green jade frog. Hate pink, actually. And I lack, I think, most superstitious reflexes. But you can never afford to turn your back on help, even of the most arcane type, even of the most superficial kind. Sal actually was anything but superficial help. I came out to say hi after a long session on the piano in the dining room. They let me play anytime there's nobody actually dining. and I needed, well, I played a lot of classical music instead of my usual mixture of modern pop and jazz and my own stuff. I stayed away from my own stuff completely, submerging myself instead in the older and, yes, arcane rhythms of Bach and Beethoven. Clemente and Mozart. Music that taps the vein of the divine, you could say, if you were one of the type to say such things. I probably wouldn't. But I would say it was good angry-slash-sad music. I wanted to be cleansed. I wanted all the anger to come out. Sally heard the anger and the sorrow. I probably think I hide my feelings better than I do. I explained that I was playing for catharsis today. Too full of emotions to really enjoy myself or or play anything I'd written. New writing was out of the question. She asked me my birthday. That's November 24th, 1970. I like the date. I like the month of November for a birthday. Apparently there are fewer of us Sagittarians than any other sign. No one likes to have sex in March, I guess. But the chances are, you know, a disproportionate number of us. We're loud. I like the number 24 as well. It appeals to my sense of balance, and it's the most divisible of all the dates you can have for a birthday, which I like very much. Tens and fives, the usual currency of civilization, are so staid and unmalleable. Twelves and sixes? They harken back to the inventors of the clock who thought divisible numbers were great. I'd have to say I agree. 1970 also seems like a good year to have been born. Nice round number, and it made me 30 in the year 2000. It also means that I missed the first flight to the moon, just barely. That keeps me feeling young around older friends. Sal did a quick tally on a piece of hotel stationery and nodded wisely. That's the problem, she said. Of course you're angry. Life Path 7 the most contentious of the paths. I'm supposed to be aggressive and confrontational, I guess, the way I was originally. And then somewhere along the way, I became a pussy. 12.14 a.m., day one. You're mean, she said. I don't know if I'd hurt her. Maybe one of her friends. Maybe she just observed it. Such a comment to hang a life on, and strangely, I don't remember who said it. Strange, because I store those nasties in an inner file along with the circumstances, their speakers, and an itemization of their effects. Comment. You're always sitting up so straight. Do you think you're better than the rest of us? Speaker, Carol, grade 7. I think I've never really had good posture without wondering if I'm somehow offering the rest of the world a slap in the face. I slouch so as not to offend. Comment. What do you think you are? A dancer? Speaker. A girl two years and a couple of centuries older during the lunch break of a show I was in as a 12-year-old amateur. The older girls came in as I fooled around to the accompanist's piano improvisations. Lesson? Don't let anyone see you do anything because they will ridicule you. I wonder why the pianist did nothing. Maybe he didn't hear them. Maybe he saw nothing wrong. Comment. Pretty girls have whatever they want. Girls like you have to work hard to keep a boyfriend. Speaker No, I don't want to go into it. The anger is surging. They call them tapes, the voices that play and play in your head saying the same hurtful things, repeating them, strengthening them, giving them renewed life. If I leave them, won't they fade? Or will they continue to lurk in the shadows of my mind, eating away at my confidence and self-esteem, like creutzfeldt Yakov syndrome or Alzheimer's leaving the tissues of the brain in Swiss cheese tatters? How do I exercise what isn't there? 12, 24 a.m., day one. Sally says I'm meant to be a shit disturber. I am meant to be at the center of conflict. She says seven is a difficult path, but it gets worse if you reject it. Try to be something you're not. When I was about 17, someone told me I was mean. I always had thought I was funny. True, I could be a little biting, but... I was a keen observer but I never thought I was out-and-out cruel. Still, the comment rang true. I knew people I'd made unhappy. I remembered comments I'd made that had struck home in a way that left big, gaping wounds that I could see even from a distance. More than that, I knew I scared people. So I determined to be nicer, promised myself, in fact, to be sweet. If I could be a good, kind person, I could make things better around me and make the world a better place to be. So was the theory. Sally would probably say it was like trying to be a lion and tending a flock of lambs. Some creatures are not meant for the coddling and maternal aspects of life. I knew that when I decided I didn't want children somewhere around the age of nine. I never wavered. I knew my own nature. But I aspired to flout my instincts and my composition and I think I have learned exactly the kind of price you pay when you go against nature. 12.30 a.m., day one. I was walking with Sandy Jean one day. Her tag was sticking out the back of her shirt, and I tucked it in for her. Oop, my seventh sense wasn't working too well, she said. Seventh sense? Yeah, the sense that tells you your tag's out or your fly's down. Or your bra strap showing... We talked about the sixth sense after that. Some people, we decided, think of the sixth sense as an intuition or psychic abilities. Some people, Sandy Jay said, just say it's your sense of direction, of which I have a killer one. I just have to orient myself to north and I can hold that direction in my head and find my way nearly perfectly. I can also find my car in a parking lot and navigate easily in malls. Both of which I hear are rare and coveted gifts, and the former at least is apparently not always or often found in women. Men are supposed to be the gazetteer kings, the human compasses. I do find on my own. I like to navigate. I'm more than competent at it, and I make both a good driver and navigator. I can do both at once. I love learning a new town. When I first arrived in Stratford, I drove pizza delivery. A fine way to get to know a city's streets and shortcuts. Another favorite thing of mine. I love to be able to get somewhere efficiently. It appeals to some underdeveloped love of order in me. You'd never guess it existed from the state of my study. Although, that might be a different problem altogether. So that's a way of approaching autobiography as a kind of loose, free-flowing, free association of events, eventually building, hopefully, into some kind of picture of a whole person. When I wrote Sincere Flattery, I kicked off the process by packing up 10 years' worth of essays, journals, and notes in a banker's box and rented a hotel room in Toronto an hour from where I lived because I figured I'd never be able to focus at home. I had a very loose plan, but mostly dove straight in to see what I could get down in three days. You noticed that I actually kind of time-stamped my entries as I went, and that continued for the three days so that you actually see what I was writing when. I'll try to post some more excerpts on the website if you'd like to read a bit more of what came out. Now, the second piece I'm going to read today is slightly more crafted, but also a true story. This may fall into the category of true-life essay filtered, of course, through a writer's pen. But I can absolutely guarantee that except for a little hyperbole in the title, it's all 100% true. This is The Devil is a Landlord. It's a really good thing I'm not the kind of girl who believes natural, everyday events can have arcane significance. Otherwise, I might take uh, the dead cat on my lawn as a bad omen. I've always held on to the idea that I'm a firmly confirmed nothing. No religion at all can touch me. The argument used to go like this. My mother was a Christian, my daddy has Jewish ancestry. Since Christian typically descends through the male side and Judaism through the maternal, I was destined to be an atheist. My two hair roughly canceled each other out. I should have no gods. I certainly don't have any ambition to be even a nominal adherent to anything. However, I know a secret. The devil is a landlord, and he's out to get me. Some of you may have already heard me go on at considerable length about the last landlord I had, delightful but psychopathically antisocial and anti-tenant. I wish the rape charge leveled against him by someone else in the building had stuck because the only way I'd ever take legal action of my own against him would be if he were safely behind bars. It was dreadful naivety on my part, I know that. But he was my first landlord. I didn't know any better. Still, I must admit I'm surprised by just how badly I was taken in. For example, did you know it's illegal for the landlord to leave bare live wire hanging from your light sockets? Actually illegal? Oh, and what else? Oh, Your landlord has to heat your apartment, even in the winter. He's not allowed to put you on the same boiler as the business downstairs, bill you both, and let them turn off the heat on weekends and evenings, even though I admit it's a wonderful energy-saving idea. The devil is a landlord, and he comes in all shapes and with all sorts of manners. This lasso was shorter than me and wandered up to my apartment one day to harass me for six months back rent, when I'd been there less than two weeks, and kept calling me by a completely unfamiliar name. Eventually, I realized he had ended up at the wrong building, in the wrong city. "'Yes, the devil is a landlord, and though though he does know my name now, "'I did not leave that particular incarnation of him my forwarding address. "'Better to lose some mail than to have him show up one day "'calling me Beverly and demanding money. "'Still, that expression about the devil you know is all too true, "'as I found out at my new place. "'I thought this landlord would be different. "'Better, even.' He was after all a pillar of society. I mean, he was rich, he had to be. He was a lawyer, and he had to be respectable. He ran for board of control. You can see how naive I was. And oh, wait, just wait, I see the problem. He's just bought a house. Hmm, and a new car. And he's got a nice new wife too. Well, it's easy to see what he has to do. Pass the spending on to the tenants. It's old Nick showing his true colours again and me without some of those little necessities for another winter. The heat and hot water ran out when he became unable to scrape together his pennies for the gas bill. I'm back to heating the apartment with an open oven and strategically placed buckets of hot water. And while my heart goes out to the rat in debt, I have to admit... That dead cat on my lawn is giving me ideas. The devil is a landlord, and I wish I could force him to walk a good old imperial kilometer in my shoes, or at least sleep a night between my icy sheets. I won't be there, God knows. I hope he won't mind that I'm going to bill the hotel room to his office. The devil is a landlord, and it's time for a mutiny in hell. The last piece I'm going to share with you today is something I wrote during a stint as a journalist in Stratford, Ontario. My editor read it and then refused to publish it. It was too personal, he told me, and I would thank him for it later. I've often thought of the decision he made over the years and the reasoning behind it, and despite being older and hopefully wiser, I still find no shame in it. I wish I'd been able to share it then, the way I get to now, because it seems like something people can relate to. Maybe a little more vulnerable than you're supposed to be as a writer, maybe too much autobiography for my particular column in the paper. But something important nonetheless. It has no title, so I guess I would just call it loss. This week I wanted to write about loss. I wanted mostly to write about loss and gain, actually, and how they come together sometimes even when you sometimes don't recognize the positive check in the ledger of life at the time. I wanted to write through it—a catharsis is what I'm saying. It's been a tough week on the emotional side. I come from a very small family. We take loss very well. We rally the troops and do a marvelous job of coping, but we are a small family nonetheless and loss hits hard because it does a real number on our numbers. My maternal grandmother passed away two weeks ago, and her memorial was this past Sunday. That's a significant loss, both because of her own inestimable value as a person, but because she was the last survivor of that generation in our family. And as a dress, my father used the song, Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child, to illustrate his feelings about his mother-in-law. My own mother reflected on all the roles that wonderful woman played in our lives. It was hard to see the gain. It was easier to see the legacy, easy to appreciate the gift we had in her, but so difficult to be happy. Loss loomed larger. I'm also, on a much lighter note, experiencing serious post-performance depression after closing the Stratford community player show, Brigadoon, on Saturday. The assistant stage manager and I went into McLeod's, the Scottish shop, downtown Sunday morning, like a pair of punch-drunk sailors. Every time we saw an item with the name of a character from the show, we'd sigh or make these little sobby noises. Oh, look at these little shot glasses with clan names. Oh, McLaren. Oh, and then the boo-hooing would begin again. The funny thing about loss and the sorrow it creates is how the world seems to change into a foreign place when you're really and truly sad. Friends seem to have different faces, all the dependable factors of daily life lose their comfort, and then their reality. You forget that although the emotion seems to be everything, nothing has really changed except inside. I've dispensed a lot of advice over the years. Some of it, I hope, good. I once saved a friend from suicide, actually, by reading her a comic book. I didn't know until years later that I had caught her at such a vulnerable moment and that she had been on her way home to kill herself. Until I intervened with my impersonation, full voice reading of, uh, The Tick. I can, uh, maybe begin billing myself with the slogan the life-saving vocal stylings of the catharsis didn't come from the writing but I did find it I called Ticket King's toll-free line no I'm, I'm not going to a show but I got through to a good friend who works there whose losses I have weathered hand in hand over the years and whose words came to me over the phone with a hint of something I might have said echoing in them Maybe that's where the balance is. I see my grandmother's beliefs and strength in who I am. I heard a friend give me back the comfort I had once given her, tempered with her own experiences and ideas. That's the gain. And the memorial, well... Let's just say I definitely shouldn't have looked at my dad while I was trying to sing that duet with my brother during the service. There are times it is okay to lose it, but still the show must go on, right? And that's it for today. Autobiography is essential to human communication. We bond over common memories. We fill each other in on things we've missed. Without autobiography, half of conversation would just dry up. Whatever your approach to telling your own story, I hope you take the time to share your own stories with others and listen to theirs. Next time on The Jeffers Podcast, I will be delving into some more purpose-written work with some song lyrics. In the meantime, you can read more of my writing at jenfrankel.com or on wattpad.com, username jenfrankel. You can read the whole first novel of my supernatural thriller series, Blood and Magic, there. It's called The Last Write. I'm also just starting to put up transcripts of the podcast on my website and hope to add some more links there for you to explore some of the writers I mentioned and also full versions of the stories I've only read excerpts of on the show. If you enjoy what you've heard today, please follow me on Twitter at Jen Frankel, or on Instagram at Jen Frankel Author. I also write books, and you can find them on your country's Amazon website. I also have a book coming soon from Calumet Press. My novel about a vegan zombie, Undead Redhead, is going to be issued by them sometime very soon, I hope. You can also subscribe to the podcast on TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, iTunes, or your favorite app. I would love to hear your comments and questions. Be sure to rate this podcast wherever you listen, and you'll have my unending gratitude. Thank you for spending some time with me. Keep writing, reading, and listening. And I'll see you next time on Jen Frankel Reads Random Shit. All content on the Jeffers podcast is written and composed by Jen Frankel. Edited and engineered by Sultan Ridwan.